This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Isn't it the dream of every architect to have their own firm? Well, I believe it is, and that's what we're talking about today with special guest Michael Shu. Today's episode is brought to you with support by Sherwin-Williams. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we are talking about starting your own firm. And we have a guest with us today, a special guest, architect Michael Shu. He is the founder and principal of Michael Shu Office of Architecture, an Austin, Texas-based firm of architects and interior designers that he founded back in 2005. Michael is a Chinese-American, originally from Houston, and one of my longtime friends from architecture school. Following graduation from the University of Texas at Austin School of Architecture, Michael worked at OMA in the Netherlands and in Dallas, which actually would have been with me. Before returning to Austin, where he has practiced since 1998, he is currently the president of the AIA Austin Board of Directors and a member of the University of Texas School of Architecture's Advisory Council. His firm has received numerous design awards from AIA Austin, Texas Society of Architects, AIA Los Angeles, IIDA Texas Oklahoma Chapter, and the Heritage Society in Austin. Michael Shue Office of Architecture was named AIA Austin Firm of the Year in 2016. And he's our special guest, and I've known him since 1989-ish. Yeah, Michael. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Are you Happy excited? I am. Really? I really am. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just good to be sitting in a room with you after all these years. It has been a while. So, Michael, I, I felt like I was debating whether I should tell this story. So Michael so he's graduated. Tell it. So I'm going to tell it. I might cut counting it out. On it. Yeah. Do you know which one it is? I don't know. Uh, I you're, don't know. You're going to know as soon as I start. So when Michael graduated one year behind me, and we needed to add people to our staff, and I was, I went to the guy who was my boss at the time, and I was like, we really need to get this guy. He's amazing. He's really good. I still had the house project that we worked on together in one of our professor studio, where Michael made the most amazing complicated basswood model to this day i've ever seen do you remember that one it was like a kidney bean shape and it yeah. was tapered yeah. and you had like this sweet little roof that lifted yeah. off it was an amazing model and if i recall you got a job offer from sinclair black to come work with him that summer to because you were you had another year to go do you remember that yeah yeah, yeah. And I remember I was just like in awe. I was like, he just got a job like, offer. I'm so jealous. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty incredible. So I convinced my boss at the time to make Michael an offer. So he came up to Dallas and he crashed on my couch for a couple of weeks. True story. Yeah, absolutely true story. And because Michael's such a nice guy, he gave me a nice parting gift. You remember what that gift was? What did I buy you? A tie? It was a pair of pants. A pants? What? <laughs> Yeah, you, you bought it. I, it was. Thanks for the khakis. It was a very nice gift, but it was like, I mean, you're you're a good dresser. You have cool clothes. <laughs> Every you. time I see you, I'm like, how does he pull off like this casual, cool style? I need to look at your shoes because I know you got some cool shoes on because you're a shoe guy, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. He's got cool stuff. And he bought me a pair of pants, <laughs> but they were green, as I remember, and they were double pleated. What the heck? <laughs> this was the late 90s or mid 90s, right? Yeah, so that, would, yeah. that would have been like 93 fall. Yeah. Well, I remember the dress code was something that we <laughs> that was thought about quite a bit at Malone's office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to wear, we were supposed to wear ties, yeah. that kind of thing. And none of us had any money. Right. You know, so like, I actually was like really grateful. I was like, this is a nice pair of pants. Double pleated. <laughs> 
They're yeah. back, though. Fleeted fronts are back. I don't know. It was amazing. <laughs> so we got you here today. Not only are you my friend, but I think your office does amazing work, like enviable quality of work. And watching your firm grow over the years has been pretty inspirational. So when we decided that we were going to have a, hey, let's talk about starting your architectural firm. I instantly thought of you because I know a little bit of this story already. I don't know if you know that I know it. You told me it years ago, but maybe you assumed I forgot it. So let's start off with the circumstances surrounding why you started your firm. I started the firm in 2005. I had been working with a well-known architect, Dick Clark, in Austin for about 10 years. Before that, you know, had a lot to do with the running of the office, and I got to see every facet of what a business was like. And Dick and I were talking about a partnership back at that time. Right. And then I got married, and my wife at the time got pregnant with our daughter, who's going to be 14 this year. And for whatever reason, something just hit me. I was like, I got to go. You want me to tell you what you told me? Yeah. Because it was you... it was an amazing piece of information. So when I asked you this question, and it was probably not that long after you started your firm, because I think you were one of the first people of our graduating class that stuck their foot in this part of the pool, like I'm going out on my own. And it was when Dick and you started talking about being partners with one another. That was the thing that you said at the time gave you the confidence to think I can go do this by myself. Like if he wants me to be a part of the team at this level, that tells me that I'm ready for the next step. Yeah, I think that leap, just putting yourself in that situation, like can I do this, is sort of the first step. Was it scary? It's the scary step too. I remember that. It's like, do I really want to do this yeah. or not? It was scary, but my family, pretty standard immigrant background. My family had owned businesses, failed, shut some things down. So, so really my fear wasn't, that it was going to fail because I'd been around failure. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all? <laughs> yeah. And and I know that even if it doesn't work, I'll figure out a way to feed myself. But it was more the risk of not doing it. And then culturally starting something fresh, like building a firm from scratch, was just so enchanting to me at the time. I have this theory. I don't know if it's a theory so much as it's an opinion at this point. But it seems like in my observations, there's a way that you can define people. And there's people that are ha have a higher threshold of risk and the idea of going out on their own, to them, that's not a big deal. They're like, if it doesn't work, I'll go do something else. Whereas mm -hmm. some people are very risk averse and they might be perfectly suited to go out on their own, but they just, the risk of what happens if it doesn't work and then, oh my God, what do I do? Yeah, I think that stops a lot of people who probably would have wildly successful offices yes. from ever taking that first step. I think that's a huge observation. It really is. I think risk tolerance is, is something kind of rare in architecture. I think as a profession, generally, we tend to be risk averse. I mean, we're a very conservative profession. I wouldn't have ever thought that. Coming out of school, I always thought of us as the front of the pack. We're the leaders. We're dragging people along with us. But when it comes to certain aspects of the profession, I agree. I think there's a road more taken. I guess. Well, I definitely think in the business sense that we're very conservative. Exactly right? you know, we're very right. conservative in the business sense. Right. But we might have avant-garde designs, but the business practices behind those are very conservative. So Yeah. Let's kind of go down that trail a little bit. So when you left, did you have work with you when you left or did you call it start fresh? I did. And it was interesting because even though looking back, it was a risk. At the time, I thought I had deferred that risk for too long already. Really? Yeah. At that time, I was like, man, I, I should have done this. Something internally just saying like, oh, you should have done this sooner. 
But when I left Dick's office, I was working on a big project. At the time, Dick's office hadn't completed a lot of ground-up commercial projects at all. And it was one of the largest ones. It was 04, which was a ground-up multifamily for sale condo. Redevelopment of an existing building in, into retail and mixed use, and then a ground-up commercial building all on South Congress. Sort of the biggest project on South Congress at the time. So I told Dick I was leaving. You know, we had some tough meetings, very heartfelt. We were close, and, and I really respected what he had built and done for me. And the, the client said, well, we want to keep you guys together on this job. So Dick and I, strangely enough, this is a very unusual origin story. Dick and I formed a third entity wow. to complete the project. And we shared credit for the job so that I didn't take it and I could stay on the job. But I didn't want to start my office off by working on a project that I couldn't have my name on. And yeah. that, was, that was pretty much it. That's a pretty rare circumstance, I think, for that to work out that way. Yeah. I mean, that's a good relationship that you guys had to make that work in that way. It is. I think there's a lot of things about the culture of Dick's office that, for me, building my office, it was the baseline on how I planned the future of our place. But his generosity, I think, of spirit really was a great lesson that I didn't appreciate until much further on as a business owner. Yeah, I can imagine. So that project wasn't a little project. So when you left, did you hire new staff? Did some people leave with you? Did you Was it just you for a while? So that, that day one, hanging your shingle out, yeah. what, what did your office look like in terms of the people that were there? Yeah, pretty much it was just myself. And then shortly afterwards, I hired one staff person. And then our joint office, our joint venture, we hired staff. So I had someone that my new hire was part of that office as well and my office. And then Dick contributed staff to that office. And then we hired contract staff to complete the project. So pretty much we, we opened two firms on day one, or I opened two firms on day one. Wow, that's a crazy kind that's of... That's a crazy story. I know, yeah, I can't even imagine. It is. You know what's so interesting is that I wanted to leave in a way that would set me up, but I didn't want to torch all the bridges. Burn bridges. Which is easy to do because, you know, when you're young and you're starting off and you're just confidence is flowing through you, you can make some pretty big mistakes. Andrew knows all I about that. I know that. Let me ask you, how old were you when this was happening? Oh, you're talking about young, but I'm, yeah, I think is, I probably... It was like mid-30s, 34, 35. That was pretty close. Mine was 32. Yeah, because that's one of the things that people really are kind of interested in is that... But you'd said you'd thought, I should have done this earlier. And there's the question about, like, what age is a good age to actually leave and go out on your own? Yeah, it's a great question. If I would have left earlier, it may have been a very different firm. I said I could have left sooner, but that was just an emotional thing. I think as a business decision, I probably left at the correct time. And what's interesting is also left in 2005, the recession sort of happened, you know, a handful of years after that. Right. You know, some people may say, man, tough time to start a business. It was actually quite fundamental on how we succeeded through slower period of growth. So let me ask you this. This had to do with hiring staff. When it came time to start adding to your staff and growing it, when did you think, because you and I talked about this just briefly before we started, and it had to do with there's support roles that happen in most offices. And your mm-hmm. office now is... 50, 60 people, if I remember correctly from yeah, the last time we chatted. Yeah, about 50. Yeah, 50 folks. At what point do you start thinking, I should get someone to do the accounting rather than me doing it after turn the lights off or business development managers or, right. you know, that kind of additional specific skill set support yeah. staff people? When did you start thinking about that and how did that process evolve for you? That's such a great question. If I could go back and tell my younger self, if I could have implemented the hiring changes that we have now in place earlier, it would have made for a smoother growth transition through 10 people, 20 people, 30 people. 
So this philosophy of the firm at the beginning was very, let's keep it small, let's just concentrate on design, and everyone's a generalist, and everyone takes out the garbage. I take out the garbage. Sure. I put paper in the printer. You know, no prima donnas here. There's no room for ego. This is just about the work. With that sort of mentality, growth was always something that we resisted. When we were five, people were like, okay, we got to slow it down. And there were 10 people, and then 15, and then 15 was a huge barrier. 15 to 20 is where you start needing a second layer of, of management and oversight. Yeah. So that was a very challenging time. You resist those things. You resist giving out titles. You resist, quote, unquote, becoming corporate. It's funny. I was in a Stanley Tigerman interview the other night because he just passed. And he talked about the business of architecture versus the, the design of, of architecture and this conflict of the two things. So at the beginning, I was pretty much, if you're a designer, then you shouldn't be a business person. But it became very clear very quickly that, hey, if you're not a good business person, you're not going to get to design anything. Do you have those business skills? Most architects that I know that have started their own offices, they don't necessarily have any business skills, but they're clever enough to understand what sort of questions to ask. And then they seem to have this, I can do it all myself. And they're hesitant to reach out and say, I need this person. Or, or even how do I go about finding that sort of person? You were saying that everyone kind of wore all the hats in the beginning. Was it around the 15-person mark where you started to bifurcate roles and responsibilities so that you could grow? People aren't all generalists yeah. when you're 15 to 20 people. Yeah, I think we stuck with the generalist thing up until we we're about 25 or so. Not only did everyone have to manage the copier, but everyone had to be able to design and be able to hold themselves up to a pretty high standard sitting at a table with a client across. The way. So I was looking for personalities and cultural fits as much as I were a design fit. You know, a lot of that, it's like a philosophical fit. It's like, is this person someone that I could work with for a year or 10 years? And do I want to be around this person? So the hiring part of the beginning years was super critical. Because when you're a small office, you know, you're working so closely, it's a tough situation, you're bootstrapping, and everyone, I feel like, has to be culturally aligned in some way to sort of put the best work together. But as we've gotten larger now, we talk a lot about other things, like, you know, we put in quality control, we have people that are strong in technical abilities, maybe not great designers, and then we have people that are incredible designers, but maybe lack some technical abilities, so a lot of it is about trying to educate people across those sort of boundaries and not compartmentalize like you might see in a, a much larger firm. Sure. Those corporate offices. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, okay, you're going to work on K through 12 for the rest of your life. <laughs> we didn't want to do that because we just felt like culturally then you just have such different types of people in your office. Yeah. I know that that's kind of a philosophy we have where I'm at currently. I'll get a lot of questions people ask about portfolios or what type of culture firm, like should I go work at a big firm? And actually, we just ran through the next episode that's coming out in just a couple of days. It's called First Jobs, where Andrew and I talked about our first jobs and how your first job out of school can temper your career. Like if you go to a big firm and have some success there, you're kind of on the big firm path for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah. You know, and you might go and learn that it's not good and it's going to put you on the small firm path, but that generally then becomes your path, right? Oh, There's yeah. like one shift that happens. And so first jobs and the first exposures are really critical. And so we've internalized that in our own office because we do, now we do a kind of a mix of everything. Yeah, yeah. But when we look for the people that we hire, it has more to do with the culture, their fit, their personality, and how they communicate, which tells us things about 
how they hold themselves out, their education level, because we're small. We need people to be able to go in front of the clients and be able to send an email yeah. out that doesn't make you squint your eyes and go, oh, gosh, I need to tack a response onto this. For me, too, I mean, I got up to about 10 or 11 people and I was still trying to interview folks. I spent the majority of the time having a conversation with them, spend five or 10 minutes looking at their portfolio and their history. But then the rest of it was about, yeah. let's have a conversation and see how I think that your personality will fit in with everybody else's and with the way, since I it's my business, well, the way I feel about it. And that's really almost more important, that gel of personalities, I think, when you're small, maybe not when you get to your size. But because you're, you're there all the time, and it, there's a lot of interaction. And one, oh, yeah. it only takes one bad seed to ruin that whole 10, 15 people and make work not a fun place to be, so which true. is always what I want it to be. Well, what was the rate that your firm grew? It's been about 10% or so, so it's not been tremendous. We didn't blow up overnight. It's been slow. And the growth trajectory, we've been thinking about this. We've been doing some strategic planning meetings, kind of like deep thinking, you know, revisiting firm history and trying to figure out where we came from and where we want to be in the future. So we resisted growth, but we had no choice because, all right, we first started doing custom residences, then we did some restaurants, and then we did adaptive reuse of existing buildings, pretty small, 5,000 square feet in Austin, very budget-driven. And we had our clients, and then someone would come to us with a new building type or a, something a little bit larger that we wanted to say yes to. Always at that stage, you want to say yes. You're like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm going to take the money. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Right. And that's that risk part that is very tough. I think when I sit down in a meeting with my partners, even today, it's like, oh, my God, we can't do that job. Some of the most critical projects that we have taken that I would feel like that have changed the trajectory of the firm, I call them inflection points in our history, were projects we said no to. I mean, one job we said no to twice wow. just because we thought we couldn't do it. We were like, we couldn't do it. And I'm not a risk averse sort of person. When there's a new project type, if someone gives us an opportunity to do it, we want to get to yes in some way. And that means like being really upfront, going to clients saying, hey, look, we haven't done this job type before. What do you want us to do? Do you want us to partner with someone? We can join venture. We can find an AOR. We can hire. What can we do to supplement to sort of mitigate the risk on your part? Because you know how it is in, in architecture. People only hire if you've done something very close sure. to 10,000 of those already. Exactly. We, want, we want you to have done it. Right. Well, you know, I wonder, I know, I, I know you're not risk averse because I've ridden on the back of a motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. And I like it. Yeah. And it was horrifying. It was very exciting. Yeah. In Dallas. No, no, no. no. It was, Austin? No. Remember, we went out, uh, we camped at, uh, I think it was like oh, Pace man. Bend Park. Yeah. And then you put me on your motorcycle. Oh, yeah. I love that old bike. Yeah. And man, let me tell you, we were ripping it. And I was, I think I had like flip flops on and shorts, no helmet. I think you had a helmet. And I was holding <laughs> back. I've never hugged a man so tight in my life. Because <laughs> you were, you remember we started talking about how you were. Yeah leaning into these curves so you steer right so the weight of the motorcycle shifts to the left and i'm sitting on the back and all of a sudden i'm whoop, going over to the side and i'm thinking my face is awfully close to gravel here you remember that <laughs> yeah yeah that was fun the true story is part of that is you, you were doing like 40 miles an hour above maybe out. it's probably yeah. true i don't yeah. i don't i would never say oh he's going like a thousand miles it <laughs> felt really fast to me and i was in the back going i mean literally I can't remember how tight it was, but I'm pretty sure I got off and I had a little like quake leg going. <laughs> it was very, and I have a motorcycle license, but I had never ridden a motorcycle like that before. Yeah, that was fun. I don't remember, mean just on the back. I mean that fast through turns. Yeah. 
I don't know if you remember, but I road raced motorcycles through architecture school. Yeah. Which is, looking back, I was like, what? What the heck? You know, that's crazy. Yeah. I still even remember. See, Michael, you're a highlight of my life here. I remember all these things. <laughs> he's, he's a highlight reel. I know. You're, you're like, Constantly well, I don't know if you remember this. Reel. I rode back. I think you had just gotten like a Volkswagen Golf or a Jetta or something. A Jetta, yeah. Yeah, you had just bought it. And you were driving the holy crap out of this car. And I remember saying, hey, don't they say you're supposed to like, you know, take it easy for like the first 500 miles? You're like, no, that's exactly wrong. You got to drive it now the way you're going to drive it so that the Pistons can work out the camshaft, and you were. I mean, you were rolling through this, killing thing. the RPMs. I mean, I'm telling you, redlining before we shift. I was. It was always a thrill ride. to be around Michael because man, it just didn't. You were a hundred percent of whatever it is you were doing. Yeah, and you know, and I look at how your career trajectory has gone, and it's interesting to hear the "Ooh, this is scary" because my perception of you is what you said prior to that is how can we get to yes, and I think that's a really important attitude to have when you start your own firm and that is you can't say i'm not prepared to take on this project you're like what can i do so that i can take on that project and that maybe might mitigate some of the risk aversion that people could have you might not feel qualified well so go find someone who can help you so that you can reach that comfort spot and be qualified Mm -hmm. to deliver because in the end i know that you have repeat clients you have people that work with you and the experience is very positive and rewarding. And you go from being their first choice to being their only choice because of the relationship and the way you've delivered time and time again, that really has to do with an elevated level of execution that you've sustained over the last, well, since you started your firm, really. Mm. Well, let me ask you this. So how do you, in those beginning years, how much did you work? Because you, you said you were married too. Yeah. And work-life balance is always kind of something that people want to understand because mm-hmm. there's the idea, well, I have to do the work from eight to five and yeah. then I go home and have dinner, see my family, put the kids to bed. And then I go back to work to one or two in the morning. And that to me, and maybe it's just because I'm old now, doesn't sound sustainable in the beginning. Did you yeah. ever have to go through a period like that? For me, work is more like moments of intensity and then moments where it's just, I'm kind of just coasting, which is reviewing work, returning emails, doing business development after hours. So the, the time in the studio, I try to be more about the architecture and design and leading staff. We should talk about leadership. To me, that's that's the one class, not even a business class in architecture school. I wish someone would have sat me down and said, hey, this is what leadership looks like. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew. We are here today to drop some knowledge on a subject that is very near and dear to my heart. Oh, what's that? Floripon 70% PVDF coatings from Sherwin-Williams. For more than 50 years, Floripon coatings have been protecting monumental structures around the world. The Floripon family of coatings are field-proven for lasting durability and meet the most rigorous specifications in the industry. Floripon can be used on a variety of exterior metal building products. The time-tested reliability of this product, paired with Sherwin-Williams innovation, means the only limit is what you can dream up. Sherwin-Williams Coil Coatings leads the industry when it comes to color innovation for coil and extrusion coatings. Their advanced color matching technology allows architects to match nearly any color imaginable. They are continually creating new color spaces that have never existed before for coil and extrusion coatings. Whether you're looking for solid, mica metallic, special effect, or print, 
They can formulate the perfect color for any building project need. Architects provide the vision. They'll create the reality. Get inspired today and request an architectural metal color card at www.coil.sherwin.com forward slash architects life. I have opinions about leadership and they really all stem from lead from the front, do what needs to be done and lead by example. Because leadership is typically thrust upon somebody. It's not a mantle that you put on yourself. Yeah. So let's talk about leadership a minute. How did leadership evolve in your firm in those early days and to today? You know, for me, it was a lot of it was just about being really respectful for the people I was trying to work with. And that was like the basis. But I'm like compassionate about design. So in those moments as architects, we, you know, we feel it. If we don't feel something, it's probably not going to be your best work. So, you know, it's an environment where you're asking people to personally invest themselves into a job. And then that is a huge amount of risk and vulnerability. You're asking for someone who's probably quite young, but that's the only way to sort of draw the best work out of them. So to me, leadership has always been like, how do you encourage and build people to want to do their best work? And my job I always felt like was as guide and a mentor and a critic, someone to help them see different ways and also to imbue those sort of philosophies of what the firm has been about over the years. And then the leadership in all the other areas, like making sure payroll is being met and, and giving people benefits and trying to have a work-life balance, which is so tough in a design-driven firm. I would agree. I think the leadership aspect, you mentioned it, but trying to pull the best out of the people that work for you, right? That's the one thing. I don't, I don't even know if you can teach it. I try to do that with my students and the people in my office, and it's really challenging to try to cultivate that out of the people that you want to get it out of. It's a hard skill to learn. I mean, I think I still am trying to learn how to do that better all the time. Yeah, because in architecture school, I think architectures, we're taught to think of it as individualistic pursuit. It's you and the building and society and your own personal moral and ethical philosophy. And that is what's going to guide your building. But as soon as you start a firm, it's like, oh, hang on. (laughs) Yeah, there's about 800 other influencing factors that are going to do this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we look to try to achieve those opportunities by giving ownership back into the work. We try to reward people in our office with opportunities. If you're invested in the project, like if you go to one of your employees and say, this is the task that's set before you and you get to design this aspect of it. My impression or my experience tells me that that is a reward that most young architects respond to very favorably. If I say, this is your design, they're going to kill themselves to try to make it the very best design. As opposed to if you just parcel somebody off into the back and say, you're QC, just do what we tell you to do. Make sure that the, you're using the right leader heads, you know, all that kind of stuff that people don't have ownership. Yeah. And when they don't have ownership, they're not as invested in the end product. Not only are you growing the responsibility and the skill set of your employees so that you're empowering them to do more down the road, you're also giving them the opportunity to express the thing that probably is what sent them to architecture school in the first place. Right. And now they're invested in not just your future and, and their future, but in the building's future, which has ramifications moving forward. Because mm-hmm. that's that's your business card for your next project. Yeah. And and in this tough economy right now, tough being it's hard to get great staff and it's harder to hold great staff. Personal fulfillment for everyone on a staff is huge. I feel like that's like a requirement. You have to bring people along. You have to make them feel like they really do belong and they're having a say and then they have ownership in the firm. And without those sort of things, I think people eventually will be dissatisfied. Yeah. 
that they're contributing in a way that makes sense and that they actually feel like they're contributing. Right. And, you know, there's all sorts of contributions now. I mean, the stuff we do for nonprofits, the things that we do, the projects we go after. You know, in Austin, we have a great architectural community that really has its roots in custom residential design, like beautiful homes. Sure. And, and we do that really well. For me personally, and I think for a lot of my staff members, a lot of them who are quite young, they don't want their work to be perhaps just about single family residences. They want to have engagement and impact, their work to have impact, sort of, oh, in a broader sort of sense, you know, broader community, broader income range, broader racial spectrum, all of those sorts of things. At a much larger level. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. That's yeah. That they want this larger impact of their work as opposed to... They this do. is the most awesome yeah. single-family residence ever. Yeah, it's re- very, they'd rather have. It's uh, a very bespoke attitude to to, yeah. to say I want to do these. That's not to demean the skill exactly. set it takes. It's, it's incredible. Those it's are incredible just, projects. It's a different kind of mentality that mm-hmm. you have. Well, I want to ask some generic questions. These aren't necessarily specific to you, but building upon your own experiences as you were navigating the waters to starting your own firm in those early years, this is what people sent questions back to me, and they go, "This is what I'm really interested in." All right. So one of them had to do with how to start getting work. So when you leave or right before you leave or whatever that process is, how do you go about getting work? I don't know if I'm a good answer for that. We haven't had a marketing business development person until 100 days ago. Really? Yeah. We're 50 people and we didn't have someone doing this until... (laughs) I was going to ask that question we were talking about staff earlier. When did you pick up somebody that was doing PD or marketing? And apparently 100 days ago. Yeah, 100 days ago. <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking about where this came from. And our first clients were really restaurateurs and hospitality clients. We've done hotels. So that industry has a very different mindset when it comes to what customer engagement looks like. It's very personal. Yeah. High touch. I call you. So even today, if someone calls us, they don't know who we are. They call and say, hey, you know, our laundry room needs a redo. Is this something you could do some drawings for? I will respond and I will call them back or text or email them or, or whatever it is. And just, hi, thanks for calling us. No. And then follow up. (laughs) (laughs) He might have someone who needs to have some technical skills developed in the office. In the, in the laundry room renovation (laughs) silo of work. To me though, the thing on something like that though, is like, you never know where that's going to lead. Yeah. Maybe not the laundry room thing, but the smaller projects, you're always like, okay, well, there's a fine line in there to say, all right, this may if I can knock this out of the park real fast or well done or whatever, yeah. that I'm going to gain somebody. And who knows uh, yeah. it, what the market is, well, if, I just, if it's going to pop up again. If I distill down what you two just said, what that comes back to me in a shorter version of it is just to say it's personal involvement. You get worse based on you. Now, this is something that so many people responded to it. They think if I do great work, more work will follow. And I'm of the opinion that this is personality-driven business. And that people work with you because they like you and they call you again because you always have to deliver the work. That's kind of the standard here. Yeah. You can't do houses that leak. You can't do buildings that don't perform their function or follow their programming. But what makes people like you and talk well of you to other people who might want to hire you is really based on how you respond to them, how you treat them. And that seems a good way to get work. You really got to put yourself out there. Yeah. I mean, you have to start getting involved in stuff because... I also think that people tend to hire architects because they know them. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is at a different scale. Most people, when they go out on their own, they're not like, I'm going out on my own. I'm going to do a hospital, right? That's not how that works. They start off with smaller projects, you know, additions, renovations, light commercial work. And that work comes from people that they've either met because they're on some rotary club meeting 
or they're in some yeah. Toastmasters class or whatever the case may be. Yeah. They get hired because people like them. And yeah. they, I need what you do, and I like you. Let's get together and make something happen. Yeah, and you showed them some level of respect, and you have the ability to execute, which is huge. I mean, you know how important execution is, no matter how good of a designer you are. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I learned very early. That's why hiring a marketing person felt like <laughs> failure to me. <laughs> <laughs> I was curious about, now that you're at the size, are you still, I feel like, am I still the person that everybody wants to talk to? I'm the reason. We're, you know, we're talking about it at yeah, this personal level. Yeah, they're I'm coming the to Michael Shoe because they want right? Michael Shoe. So, yeah. Are you at yeah. the point, though, now that you've got so many people, are there other persons in your office that are doing that BD-level work, or is it still the majority of that falls on you, even with a staff of 50, yeah. that at the end it's you in there closing the deal? Right. That's a great question. What happened was I was doing so much business development and answering phone calls about laundry room at you know, remodels that, <laughs> that I wasn't able. My best use of my time is in the studio working with staff and doing some business development and meetings for when it's critical, like the pitch, when SD is being pitched, I need to be there for those sorts of things. So I really pared down my, if you write a a list of everything that you do in your firm right now, it may be 300 items. And it's like, I needed to get to 50. Right. So that the firm could succeed because it was ridiculous. And we're, we're not all meant to be architects and accountants and human resource managers and do technical like <laughs> and marketing QC staff and marketing yeah, right yeah, right, yeah. I know. and do podcasts so if very was, few people should do that last one yeah yeah <laughs> i don't think there's anything to gain from that last one. <laughs> oh, let me ask you this so what are the things that when you're going to start off day one what kind of things do you think you need to have in place like if you're going to start what do you start with other than a good attitude and yeah, a positive I, outlook <laughs> I needed a client. And really, the sort of origin story of my firm is there's one client that really was the colonel that sort of launched our firm. And he's one of my best friends now. He founded Uchi and Uchiko, but he's also a real estate developer. And he's just an entrepreneurial guy. And we're about the same age, so our successes and failures have been in step with each other. And and it wasn't intentional. It's not like, you know, I said, oh, I'm going to go find a, a Medici. And he wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go find... This, it was it's just purely by, by chance. Yeah. yeah. I was going to give it for you, Da Vinci. <laughs> yeah, that does seem to make a difference. You know, having my office, those kind of clients do get referred to as the Medici family. We have one client that just really loves us. And anytime they do anything and they're of that ilk to where they seem to always be doing something, they call us. Yeah. Which is really nice. But Powerful. few people get that person right when they leave and start their firm. Or if it is that person, they don't know it. So it's not like you have right. the safety blanket or the security blanket to feel, oh, I know this one person's going to constantly feed me a stream of work yeah. that will allow me to bankroll my operation while I go do other business development operations. Yeah, yeah. Well, if we're going to speak of the Medici's, let's talk about Ducats here for a minute. How do you like that referral to <laughs> the money system of the Medici time? <laughs> I know nice. lots of random stuff. <laughs> so do you have to have any money to start a firm? I mean, you don't personally have to tell me what well, you had, but I mean. No, I honestly, I told myself it's like I need enough money just to manage cash flow until clients start paying and then just hope for the best. You know, honestly, at that time, I had such little overhead. It kind of wasn't. Yeah, yeah there's no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, have to, I have to make my salary. That's about all I'm worried about. Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. My, my salary, one employee, and my rent was a few hundred dollars a month. So Really? Yeah, it, it so did. So you did go find space. You didn't like work out of your house for a little while? No, I, I wanted an office. I didn't want to do the work out of my house thing. I you know, I did borrow some money. I borrowed it from my family. 
it was exactly fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. I was like, all right, this is cash flow for three months probably. And if all hell breaks loose and no one pays me, the economy crashes tomorrow, then I'm out fifty K and I'll go work contract for whoever. And, and your family's not gonna come for your knees. Well, they're, they're they might. Yeah, there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of money at the time. Yeah, for, I was like, yeah, yeah they and might. it wasn't my family, it was, it was my wife's family. But it was a loan. I mean, and I paid it back sixty days after I, I borrowed it. That's a pretty fast turnaround. That's nice, yeah. Yeah. If, if you borrow money for the next ninety days and you return it within those sixty days, yeah. things obviously you're like we're gonna be okay. Well, I think starting off with one project that you can rely on is is tremendous. Well, it sounds like it was a pretty good sized project too. It was. It to, was fairly and that's large. that's easy to cover the two people and the so that's why I think starting so off true. small it's a little bit easier to you don't need quite the amount of cash flow to yeah. feel yeah. like you're doing good. Right? Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. to keep the positive attitude. Right. Right. Well, let's talk about positive attitude in a slightly different way in terms of mentorship. So when you started off, did you have a mentor or someone who you could call up and say, hey, this just came in the door. I don't know how to handle it. What should I do? You know, not really. I just didn't have the confidence to call anyone up and say, can you help me with this? I mean, I relied on a couple of business people who are clients and entrepreneurs just asking us like, hey, uh, you know, how do you manage cash flows? Like, oh, you don't have a line of credit? Oh, you should get a line of credit. You should have an umbrella policy, basic sort of stuff. But also just like, oh, yeah, you know, you're going to need to think about things like leadership and human resources and just a litany of other things. And there were more business people that were outside of architecture that I relied on and, and not really architects. Because I, <laughs> I think this is so funny. This is a very personal thing. But I think if you start your own firm in architecture, it usually means you have a healthy distrust for the profession. <laughs> You've got your ideas already of how it should be working. And you want to make it that way, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Like, this is not how it should be. I'm going to make it how it should be. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. And, I think and, so. And if you look around and your firm looks like everyone else's firm in your town, you're screwed. Yeah. What are you offering? Yeah. Well, service is something that comes up frequently, and that is maybe justifying your value is not the right way to look at it. But when you think, why would somebody want to work with me? Like, what makes me special? And I don't mean as in, like, unicorn special, but just... What do I do that makes it different from if the only requirements are fulfill the programming and keep water out of the building, line forms to the left. There's lots of firms that do that. But why does someone come to Michael Shu or to Andrew Hawkins or Bob Borson? And that kind of circles back to our conversation 20 minutes ago yeah. about the role that your individual personality and your attention to the needs of that person are dealt with. And that also says that supports that you know the people that are coming to hire you you're not meeting that person for the first time across the table from them when they're looking to hire you. They already kind of know a little bit about who you right, are. Right. And so they know what kind of person they're getting involved with. Yeah. We kind of glazed over a little bit how much you were working when you first started when it was the two of you. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. we talked about life balance, but I'm curious because when I started, it was a lot of work. Yeah. Because it was just two of us. I was doing everything, all that stuff. And so I was actually working a lot. Did you put did you in put in a lot of hours, or were you able to manage it because of I the did. way the situation was? I put in a lot of hours, but it, a lot of what I put in is just I just don't turn it off. You know, I'm one of those people who will text and email at two in the morning if that's what it is, or when I'm on vacation or whatever it is. I mean, I'm <laughs> this is part of my philosophy is like, hey, I'm just available. If you hire me, I'm there. Yeah, hmm. we have, sometimes you know, I don't have that attitude. <laughs> 
I know it's a boundary that, like, that oh. is probably a little too loose, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have that. And this is something that I struggle with because we've done a school recently. We've done multifamily, single family, like commercial. I mean, our portfolio is really kind of all over the place a bit right now. And it is because it reflects our personality and that people like working with us and we get hired to solve their problems, not because we've done something, but because they know that we are available mm-hmm. and people are, I think it's crazy. My cell phone is on my website. Yeah. If you want to call me, you can call me. I'm not hard to get a hold of. And I'll generally answer the phone. We don't have a policy. Like we have a commercial job we're doing right now. I don't know how to not do it. Like we would do a residential project. It is white glove. You need something. I'm there. You call me. I'm coming all the time. Yeah. Nights, yeah. weekends, whatever. Yeah. We try to keep a pretty strict eight to six. We work summer hours permanently. So we're eight to six Monday through Thursday, eight to noon on Fridays. We generally try to encourage people to leave when those time periods are up so that they can mm-hmm. go be regular people. Cause we think what they bring back from that enrichment outside of the office makes them better architects. Mm-hmm. We don't want to burn through our folks, but at the same time, they need to understand that as they move up, those windows are just suggested times. Mm-hmm. I work a lot and all the time and you know you can't ever create that kind of bifurcation of work life because i'm really available for work all the time yeah and it's a hard mentality to have but i think people who start their own offices i think you kind of have to have that attitude yeah Yeah. i mean i did work a lot but i didn't work any more than i was when i was working for someone else i think i worked a little bit more what he's saying is he worked 80 hours a week all the time anyway oh yeah i I didn't do that yeah (laughs) And again, it was when it started, it was like, well, I'm going to do it because I've already got things going the way I want. And if it fails, it fails. There's still something else I can do. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of hours early on because there was a lot of work going on when it fell into my lap that way. Yeah. It's not for everyone. I do not think having your own architecture firm is for everyone. That should not be the goal for an architect, I think. I think it's for certain people. Well, and you, you know I, it, I, too. I, yeah, you know I agree it. With that. You, you, yeah. So let me ask you this because this is something I've always kind of wondered about because I've seen it in some places that. It's hard to kind of take a step back when you start your own firm because, you know, you're used to getting a paycheck and you work your job because that speaks to your character, how you go about your business, how much time you spend, you know, your dedication to the craft. However, when it's your firm, when you're not working, you're not earning money. So there's this built in switch in your mind that says, when I go on vacation, I'm actually having to pay myself to go on vacation. It's not like. I don't work and someone else is paying me while I go on vacation. And people tend to really kind of burn themselves out because the more they work, the more money they make. And there's this fear in the beginning that I need to build up a war chest. So, hey, while the sun shines, if there's money that I can go earn by working more in a shorter period of time, you know, if I can work 20 hours a day and get paid X as opposed to working two and a half days and getting paid the same amount, they push themselves harder and harder and harder because they're like, well, if I don't work, I don't make the money. It doesn't just come in anymore. Yeah, but I think that's an easy way to get burned out. Yeah, but I, I tried, how do you not? I, how do you not for do a while, that? But then you, I think you just realize doing that doesn't necessarily change the outcome. At some point, the number of hours you put in doesn't. Yeah, there's no return on it. There's a threshold there somewhere where it's like, yeah, yeah. If, even if I keep working, it's not going to make a difference. Well, spiritually, there might be a threshold, but literally, if you work more and it's just you doing the work. Like say in our office, we, we bill hourly for a lot of our work. So quite literally, the more I work, the more fee I generate in a smaller window of time. Yeah, but at some point, though, the quality of work that you're making and the ability to 
the amount of work you can get done in hour one versus hour 12 or 15 is sure. a lot different, right? So it takes the, the ability to realize that. Yeah, but you're, ta- like, you're talking about whether or not that's a good idea. I'm saying that people do that. That's a mentality that people who start new firms tend to have. Yeah. Like they might say, I'm going to save my sharpest eight hours or 10 hours for the design work, the doing the drawings. And then I'm going to work the next eight hours picking up the manila folders and staples and trying to do learn about my billing or set up new templates for field trip. There's that grind that happens. And it's because everybody tries to wear every single hat in the beginning and being able to step away from that and say, at a certain point, there's a diminishing return on the time that I'm spending. That's a very mature, enlightened approach to it. And I think you have to live through the first part to come to that conclusion. You have to build up to it. Yeah, you do. And I still feel like I'm lazy. I mean, (laughs) which you probably is the word on the street. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that seems to work. The work sort of seems to indicate it. Because I, I really need my downtime. Like, it, it takes a lot of energy. I mean, I have a fuel tank every day. If I'm in a meeting where I have to be on for, like, three full-on meetings or something, that is really draining to where I – people <laughs> – my staff knows not to come talk to me about a new great idea at 5 p.m. probably. Yeah. Um, because by the end of the day, I'm just like, you know, I'm a vegetable. Yeah. That's, yeah. The, that's mm-hmm. the introvert battery theory. Yeah, right that's there. exactly it. I mean, I have the same thing. You kind of do, too. I don't. I pretend I don't, but I totally do. I know you always pretend you don't, but you do. Yeah, and it's just Bob's like an introvert point, that behaves as an extrovert. Yeah, but it's that's exactly right. You know, not that many people have figured that out about me. Well, I honestly think that I could have you talk for another two hours, but we have things we got to do. We we'll just have to have him back again. Yeah, we'll, we'll have, have a, you back. Have another another episode. We'll have you back. And we'll put you. Yeah, we'll do a fun show, yeah. and we'll just like riff on stuff. Cool. But the thing that we have left, the thing I save for the end of all our episodes especially now when we have guests, because I think it's the best part about it, is the hypothetical. Okay. You're, you're familiar with hypotheticals, are you not? A little bit. So Ours are always fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we're throwing up some softballs with the guests. Andrew and I, we're hardcore hypothetical responders now because yeah. we've done so many of them. We've got a couple that are not safe for air <laughs> that would be great for the right person to listen to where we're like, that's not for general consumption. <laughs> so the one we have today is actually not a hard one, but I think it could be interesting and I've got a twist to it. Okay. Of course. Which Andrew always rolls his eye because I don't tell you the rules until you give me your answer. And then I say, you can't do that because here's a new rule. All right. Right. This is how he plays. He makes the rules up as he goes. No, I know what they are before we start. Yeah, but you I don't just don't tell, tell you. Anybody. Yeah. You give like one of the five. And then yeah. You start if answering, you step on then... one of my landmines, then I'm going to tell you about it. All right. So here's the question. Here's our hypothetical. If you were to ask your future self from the year 2050 a single question other than how did I live until the year 2050, (laughs) what would it be? You know, I did the math in 2050. I'm only going to be in my 80s. I should have said like 20, you know, 90 or something where I'm like really, really old. That's only only like 31 years from now. I hope I'm still doing something in 31 years. But that's it. You, 31 years your senior, comes back. What do you ask you? Oh, yeah. You know, it probably wouldn't be, did you create your perfect building? I don't think it would even be about a building per se. And it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be about architecture at all. Yeah. Well, architecture, so it's hard to disassociate life from architecture, I think. But I think it would probably be, did you sort of build a firm and a culture that did some meaningful things? Not necessarily beautiful buildings, just some meaningful things whatever that is. And I mean, that's a, a bit of a open-ended cop-out question, but 
to me, it, it's going to be about, well, did you reach people that, you know, maybe were underserved? I mean, this is so, I'm not necessarily a super philanthropic person, but I still feel like the sort of ethical bent of architecture, the things that we went to school with, I kind of put on a shelf for decades because I just needed to feed myself, make money, like yeah. make money and raise my kids. And now that definitely in the, in the middle of my life, you know, now these other questions are the ones that are more important. Yeah. What do you, what I mean, about you? It's getting all touchy feely in here. No. <laughs> I think for me, I, I almost just want to be like, how are my kids? I feel like to me, that's really where I would ask. It wouldn't even be about me because at that point, I, I don't know that I care. Yeah. I mean, if I'm still alive, I'm doing good. Somehow. Yeah, you don't get to say, should I have quit riding motorcycles sooner? Yeah, I feel like it would be something along that line. How are my oh, yeah. kids doing? What yeah. kind of life? What kind of life do my kids have in 30 years from now? How did they turn out? Because the situation that I'm in, I, oh. I spend a lot of time with away from my kids and with my kids. And so I want to, I really wonder about the impact of those kind of things on their life. So I'm like, how do my two daughters turn out 30 years from now? Do you wish you could change your answer now, Michael? No, no, I, I think that... <laughs> That gets to, it's so funny, you know that Harvard study that 75 years old, they followed a class of Harvard from, oh, it's like 1930-something, mm -hmm. and a group of men who, you know, were just off the street, very regular people. It was a survey about happiness. And at the very end, what they found out was it wasn't what you accomplished. It was all the stuff that you read in self-help things. It was really the quality of the relationships you had in your life. That's it. Yeah. That seems to be the question... When I was thinking about this, when I put this together, it was the sort of answer you go, do you have any regrets? Is there something in your life that you did that you wish you took the other path? But there's sort of a negative thing. Like, is there something you want to reinforce? And I looked at it and I go, if I'm only asking my now 80-something-year-old self a question, mine was, do you have any regrets? Hindsight's twenty twenty. Is there something I didn't do or should have done? That it seems like a loophole. I don't think you should be able to. Well, it's kind of it's kind of all encompassing, right? Yeah, it's a cheat. It's not. <laughs> no, it's a really good question. Hmm. How do things go? Yeah, you know, because the thing is, if I'm there answering my question, I can see if I've lost the leg. Like if you showed up, <laughs> if your 85 year old self shows up and you've got only one arm, don't you think your question would be, "What happened to my other arm?" <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Or you should have taken better care of yourself. Like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> what if what if you're overweight or you have like an eye patch or something? I you're think you're in a wheelchair. And yeah, you're, like, you're, you're gonna yeah. go. What should I not do? What's the story behind this? I think once you showed up, like how you roll out of the box or something that your old self travels back to talk to your inner self in, it's gonna shoot your how my kids question out the window. You're gonna go, what happened to my leg? You know, maybe something. You only and you only get the one. That would be hard, right? That'd be really hard to go, no, no, I need to ask about my kids, but I really want to know what happened to my leg. That would be really tough to not do that. I guess. I, to me, my, my attitude is I feel like whatever has happened to me has happened to me. It's going to happen. Maybe me asking the question about it really won't even change the outcome. Unless it was like you got stuck in a canyon for 127 hours and you sawed your own leg off. You don't think you'd go, all right, I'm going to avoid canyons. But as soon as that piece of information know, right? gets I mean, put in your brain. It could have been something else that was... That was the greatest trip ever until that happened. So I feel like it's whatever happens to me is happening to me regardless. And so I'm more concerned about you know what happens to the other people that I care about. It's really an end of life question. This is like a deathbed thing. A little bit, right? <laughs> I was going to say Andrew's answer. That was the wrong answer. Of course. That's what, that's what he always says. I, always I never say. answer correctly. Okay. What if here's the twist? So in this case, it's you asking your older self a question. They don't get to say, hey, here's what you need to know. Looking back, I know a bunch of things. This yeah. is the thing you need to know. So how different would it be 
if it wasn't your current self asking your 85 year old self that question, but rather your 85 year old self coming back to tell your current age self something, how different do you think that would be? What would you want your older self to tell you? Well, I thought that was your question. No, no, no. it's you asking the older version of you, like to help me not go down the Uh, wrong road. That's why I was like, if your older self shows up and it's missing a limb, your question to that person might be, what did I do? (laughs) Right. So I think it would be different depending on which way the question's being asked from the younger to the older versus the older to the younger. They would be different questions. And I think that's kind of an interesting consideration as well. I mean, you look like you're in your 30s, but I know you're not. So if I say (laughs) your late 40s self and what's important to you now Mm -hmm. as you're projecting forward is going to be wildly different than what your 80 year old version of yourself is looking back. Yeah. Unquestionably, I think, because that's a person if your 80 something comes back and it's missing a leg and says you need to do pay more attention to your daughter so that because her confidence is something that's really going to be important. And that's the one thing I wish I had changed. Maybe. And and chooses not to tell you about the leg kind of tells you that the leg doesn't matter. Mm hmm. So I think it's different depending on which way the question goes. I think my answer works both ways. The older self me would say, hey, your kids turned out great. You needed to help your daughter at this because that's my mentality now. I feel like it's still going to be my mentality 30 years from now, but maybe not. Michael's older self would come back and just go, you nailed it. And just <laughs> turn around He's and gonna be like, keep doing the same thing. Oh, yeah, you're funny. good. Yeah, you that's nailed funny. it, brother. Yeah. Get a faster Life motorcycle. Life is amazing. Get a faster motorcycle. <laughs> It wouldn't, I don't, what's interesting, like, I feel like I'm, I'm a better architect now than I was a few years ago. Um, sure. I think that makes sense. Yeah. And, but I think it's tough for people that like, I still, every day I go to work and I still like, it's still exciting. You know, we're still doing new things. That to me is what I want to make sure like I retain that it's still exciting to, to go to work and do jobs and work with people. And, and you know, the gap between my age and the people that are coming in the door is, is getting wider and wider. And to really embrace that, I mean, it's it's hard to be older and not become the grumpy old architect. The curmudgeon. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> you know, we don't use that word as often as we should. Great, it was a great curmudgeon. Curmudgeon. That's a great time. For yeah. That. yeah. Can you turn that into a verb? Make it curmudgeon-y? curmudgeon Curmudgeon. I-N-G. <laughs> like, I'm curmudgeoning. Yeah. Is that a real word? I think it ought to be. Imagine it could be. Know, maybe. Yeah. 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 Anything to avoid early onset grumpiness, whatever that is. <laughs> well, that suggests that you're always doing new things. You know, you don't settle into, uh, I'm really good at this and I just keep doing more and more of it because the reward right. is the chase rather than the fruit of the chase. Yeah. But that's also, you've done very well for yourself and you can have that attitude because the other part's taken care of. You know, I know that for me personally, one of my ongoing concerns is I have to take care of my family. And that's not to suggest that other people don't, but based on your financial position in your life, your priorities might change. Yeah. Right. If you know that, hey, what I'm doing now, my kids are taken care of. They can go to any college they want. I have a house. I have discretionary income to pursue hobbies that I find enriching to myself. That's a very lucky and fantastic fortunate fortunate position to be as opposed to wow if things don't work out well i mean i'm gonna have to sell my house and move into an apartment and my kid won't be able to go to the school that i've been sending him in the last couple of years it's different but it's certainly something that i think at either level the pursuit is always worthwhile i mean it's why i started the blog it's not because i love working an extra 20 hours every week to do it (laughs) 
I do it because it's become a way of feeding my soul that fulfilling. didn't yeah. exist in my job. Well, you're doing something meaningful. You're doing, and you're adding something to a profession that it doesn't exist. We're still a very inwardly looking profession for the most part. So when I think parts of us are daring enough to sort of reach outside our usual boundaries, it's good. And we do that a lot by showing pictures of our work and talking about our work. But I think the cultural impact of architecture and design, a lot of times we don't do a great job of speaking about it. Yeah, to people that aren't. Yeah, right. talking to people that don't We're not are welcoming. architects. Exactly. I think it's because we don't know how, though. It's hard for us to translate what we do into something that's really easily communicated in a way. I mean, not that it can't be, but I think it's difficult for us as a, as a profession, as a group mm -hmm. of people. We mm -hmm. have That's a challenge for us somehow to, to break that barrier. Oh, yeah, yeah. In my meetings, I am so touchy-feely. It would make you cringe if you sat in a pitch. Is I HR am... listening to this right now? No, <laughs> no. But it's so true. It's like I remember um, so many of our meetings, you know, I've sat in with architects like, all right, here's our scheme for you. We prepared four schemes for you to look at, <laughs> which yeah. is already, I'm already like, oh, no. And it's like, this building is X square feet. And we've analyzed your program. And it's like, oh, my God, this is how you disengage with someone. This is how you don't get to yes quickly you know those first two minutes of a pitch is everything first yeah. two minutes in the last two minutes so it's always like man you got to connect with people emotionally you got to like get in their head and show them something that their heart says i need that i want that in my life i want to put my business there i want my kids to be whatever it is yeah. to me it's it's purely emotional what it is that we do and all the other stuff the technical stuff we just have to be proficient at it. Yeah. That should be the expected part of the gig. Yeah. Yeah. That's why when we talk about architects, we're here to provide a service. We're great listeners. We're blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I think we sell our profession short when we're just being service providers. I agree. I feel so moved. I am moved. That's great. Okay. I'm going to call that a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 30, starting your own architecture firm. Special thanks to guest Michael Shu for joining us today. I know that your insights provided a lot of value to my own personal process, and I think the listeners we have will find value in it as well. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 30 seconds and head over to iTunes or your favorite listening app and subscribe so you get fresh new episodes automatically downloaded to your player of choice every two weeks. And while you're there, please leave us some feedback as we'd really like to hear your thoughts on the show and a five-star Office of Insert Your Name Here rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Thanks, guys.